welcome to Writer's Blockbusters, the show where we treat the final edit of the movie like the script. I'm one of your hosts, Bob Rose, at Thundergrunt Bob on all social media, and right now, Jimmy's going to introduce himself. I am Jimmy George. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, and by the way, my Twitter handle is at Jimmy R. George. And now, Jamie. I'm Jamie Nash, and I am a screenwriter, and I wrote a book called Save the Cat Writes for TV, and another book called The Save the Cat Beat Sheet Workbook, which are now available at Amazon. Go buy them right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, today, we're going to talk about one of the premier Oscar contenders, The Holdovers, uh, by Alexander Payne. But before we get into our talking points, we're going to go around and we're going to say our own personal reaction to this movie. Uh, whatever we want to say. So let's start with Jamie. I liked it. <laughs> All right, Jimmy. All right, yeah. That's it. <laughs> like Thanks it. for listening. Like... See you next week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's good writing. Um, <clears throat> I, yeah. I, I don't. I don't have a ton really to say about it. It, it, it was kind of a joke, but also kind of serious. I liked it. I, I mean, it was a. Uh, it was a movie like we don't get too often anymore, which uh, I appreciate. Um, I love there, there's some elements of it. Like I love the look and the design of it and stuff like that. I think it's great. I think Paul Giamatti's great. I think it was a fun watch. Um, I, it's weird. I don't think it's like as good as some movies I'd compare it to like sideways, you know, just or election or dead poet society or something like that or whatever. Um, but I think it's really good and uh, probably in my top five for the year. Nice. Jamie? Uh, yeah, I went into this completely blind, which I think in this day and age is hard to do. Like, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, and I was really glad because uh, nothing was spoiled. And it was, I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. Like, the performances were fantastic. Of course, the, like, like Jamie said, you know, the 70s ambiance. I, I love that. Um, I think the script is really fucking great. Uh, and we're another one of these things where we're not even going to get to scratch the surface of all the craft on display. Um, but I think it's deserved of its nomination for, you know, for best screenplay. And um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about like all that stuff. A potential so. winner for like we were talking about before. I, I think it's got a good shot at winning the best screenplay. Yeah. Original screenplay. Original yeah. And, and by the way, the script is out there. We're going to reference it like the actual written word, the visible ink. Um, and for anyone out there who's just trying to learn, I think it's a great learning teaching script. It, it, it reads, it's very lean. There's tons of white space. There's bolded scene headings, Jamie. Um, <laughs> I like bolded. I, I, do, I do too. I do bolded scene headings. So. I do too. It's a, yes. you know, it's one of the many things that people argue over. Um, but yeah, it's a great read. It's a, it's uh, you know, that he, he, he does the things where he cheats with, the unfilmables in a way that it's still technically filmable and things like that. It's I just, do that a, too. I do, I do that, that too. too. Um, so <laughs> every, it's just a great script. So yeah. once again, I feel like this is like last episode, the segment of the show where you guys are supposed to say other stuff. And talk about <laughs> the script. Um, I'm going to use mine. I mean, obviously I want to say I've been, a, I'm a lifelong Paul Giamatti fan, obviously, huge fan i th I almost feel like this this role is like everything his career has kind of been working towards not that he doesn't have a lot more in him but it kind of feels like one of those roles that's like 
you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm rooting for the guy. But uh, one thing I wanted to say uh, about Paul Giamatti is that with the holdovers press tour, he's done a lot of like interviews and stuff recently and, and like career retrospective videos, especially with GQ and Vanity Fair and a few other podcasts. And every time one of these people interview him, they always skip over shoot him up. And I just want to say, I love shoot him up. <laughs> it's one of Paul Giamatti's best performances. And everyone should watch it. And those publications should stop ignoring it. <laughs> because Paul Giamatti, if you ever watch him in any of his interviews, he always loves talking about his lesser love movies. He's happy to talk about Big Fat Liar, uh, Private Parts, Big Mama's House. He he views all of it so, as equal footing acting. He <clears throat> does not like want to forget you to forget about the stuff that he's I, done. I I listened to a podcast. He did Mark Maron's podcast, and I thought it was great. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't it, listened was, to that yet. It was one of my yeah. favorite Marons in a long time. Like I, I awesome. thought it was great. Um, however, on that one, he, I can't remember the exact words because it's been a couple months since I listened. But it, it basically said he did not understand Big Fat Liar at all. And he still doesn't understand it, but people yeah. like it for some reason. Like he was very confused because he, he was like, I think Marin asked him, is there any movie you really didn't like? Or you did? he said, there's this one kid's movie I made, Big Fat Liar. I had, I have no idea what it was about or, you know, something like that. I still <laughs> yeah. don't. He if you watch of, the, the yeah. GQ video, he mm -hmm. talks about like how they just let him go nuts in that and how, and the whole thing about him getting painted blue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah. I, he doesn't seem vindictive about. No, either. no, he he was so. more like casting himself as the fool in that one. Like he, I didn't he even it, you know. he even had an interviewer say, "You probably don't want to talk about private parts." And he and Paul Giamatti goes, "No, are you kidding? That was like a total tour de force of acting. Like mm -hmm. he, he like defended yeah. private parts and his role as pig vomit, <laughs> you know, <Sure>. like <laughs> totally." So I don't know. Like I love this movie and everything, but. Paul Giamatti is one of those actors who's done literally everything and it annoys me when you see people like forget or want to push away like comedy action stuff I don't know why that always annoys me but <laughs> or, I'm using my little tiny platform here no, to say I do that. have a bone to pick with him about those like telephone commercials like what the heck <laughs> well, okay that's <laughs> fine yeah, what are you I doing forgot about that um, he's got to eat he's got to yeah, eat well, my my friend Chris once said that for those commercials he he kept the hat from the John Adams so he already had the hat. <laughs> You're right. Uh, yeah, he, I, I always thought that was perfect because he does it's just the same hat from John Adams. Also, what what year were those? He probably he wasn't like yeah, maybe I, making top money. No, I think it was in then. the last three years he's been doing. Oh, this. was it? Yeah, I okay. think they're recent. I, I, you know, I think he's had a long ongoing. I I think they basically dumped a truck of money in his front porch for him. I mean, he probably got like, you know. $10 million to do these commercials or something. And it was Good like, for him. Yeah, you know, he also has a podcast. Paul Giamatti has a podcast called Chinwag. I did not that, know that. He, he has his own podcast and it's been going on since I think 2020. So. Uh, my, my friend uh, Bradley, he did a, um, phone his, call. his show. Yeah. I wonder who that is. <laughs> um, uh, he did a show. Right here. <laughs> Um, yeah, he did a show called Lodge 49. Um, and yeah, yeah. G Giamani actually was the, uh, he was the, um, producer of it. He was in it too, right? Then he, wasn't he in it? He talks about it in one of those videos and they, yeah, he says it was just uh, he, a very, he was. He was, real show. He was in the last season of it. Yep. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you for letting me talk about Paul Giamatti. Last time I talked about, um, what's his name? 
the other actor david crumholtz crumholtz right um so so i'm gonna yeah i want i always use i'm gonna use my segment sometimes for non i want to <laughs> use it for anything about the movie but yeah <laughs> he's so great in this movie i'm kind of hoping he wins best actor but i don't think it's possible i think oppenheimer is gonna steamroll that but what does the oscar know anyway um <laughs> jamie who wrote this shit Yes, the writer of this was David Hemmingson. David Hemmingson. And David Hemmingson is mostly a sitcom guy. Um, if you look at his IMDb, it says, writer known for Whiskey Cavalier, which was, I guess that wasn't a sitcom. That was kind of an action comedy show. I, I watched a couple episodes of that. Um, Kitchen Confidential, isn't that a reality show? And, it sounds like a reality show. Yeah, it's not. Don't trust the bee in apartment 23 and just shoot me. So that kind of gives you the feel for who he is. Um, and apparently this script started as a TV pilot. Like he was trying to write. I, I, I read a little bit of his backstory. Like he started as a lawyer. He, he made the jump to writing. And he has a ton, ton, ton of credits. Like Family Guy, American Dad, How I Met Your Mother, Lie to Me. You know, all these different shows. Like just a working guy who's who probably has 200 television episodes under his belt or something from all different shows. Um, and apparently he was a lawyer. He made the jump to writing and, you know, he, he's been working hard ever since. But um, this particular script started as a pilot and it was more going to be kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of his shift. Like, you know, I've, I'm writing all these kind of work for hire on all these other shows. I'm going to write something personal. I'm going to write something about my past. Um, he went to a boarding school. He um, he actually, I think he had a parent split, split up situation. You know, there was something going on with that. Um, and his pilot was actually, what, he, what I think I read about it was that <clears throat> it was about a kid that went to a boarding school. I think it said his father taught at the boarding school. So it was kind of like a father-son kind of story set at the boarding school is, is what happened. And again, it was a pilot, so it was a TV show that would happen over many, many uh, episodes. And then, Jimmy, you can fill in a little bit of this. But um, then Alexander Payne kind of called him up out of the blue and had read the pilot and, and kind of pitched him on a feature that wasn't quite the pilot. It was kind of like a new idea, but also set in a boarding school as well. Yeah, and it was also the pilot was in the eighties, and uh, and and Alexander right. Payne pitched to move it to right at the, you know, during the Vietnam era, you know, and uh, so he said that Alexander Payne gave him this logline to build the new version out of. And it is an ocularly challenged prep school professor is punished into holding over with a group of students, one of whom has been abandoned by his mother for her honeymoon. That was and he said, that's all he gave me. <laughs> and he said it was really great, a really great collaborative process, as he said, he said, so he started to build the story and the characters. He said he started to write short stories with all the different characters. And then as they got more developed, he'd start pitching to, to Alexander about where the direction of it was going. Um, but yeah. And, and the one, <clears throat> the one thing I wanted to mention, cause it kind of is brought up here. So him writing a pilot for a TV show, 
the one thing I really like about this pilot he decided to write, and I'm sure he's written many pilots over time just with his long career, but the one thing I always advise, like in my book, I always say pilots in particular, like even more than features, really need to be personal. I, I The way I put it is they have to be kitchen confidential, uh, you on a plate. They really have to be, they really have to say something about you. They really have to, there has to be something personal in it. Now, my, my advice is more because pilots are even more so writing samples than features are. So when you're writing, it's less like you're trying to pitch some high concept and you're really pitching yourself. So you have to pitch yourself as a good writer, but you actually have to pitch yourself as a person with something to say, with experiences, with point of view. And I think that's key to writing a pilot. And that's what, what he did in this particular pilot. And it just so happened that it was kind of a writing sample of sorts, right? Alexander yeah. Payne got it and said, this is the guy I need to help write my movie. So, or turn his thing into my movie or whatever, however you want to frame it. <laughs> if you ever want to hear us talk about pilots, we did the Cobra Kai pilot, right? That's like, right. That's yeah, if you want to hear us exclusively talk about a pilot. We did. And one day we're going to yeah. do the Game of Thrones pilot. Just <laughs> yeah. Because that's the one thing Bob doesn't want to do. Nobody wants that. We made Jamie do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Is it really that good? Is it that good of a pilot? The okay. Ga the Game of Thrones pilot is very instructive because a lot of people want to make right. pictures like that. But um, I, I personally, I mean, it's kind of dated at this point. I don't know if we... Maybe at for its tenth anniversary. Nobody wants to listen to that. So. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have to wait to an anniversary special. But or something. I, so I did want to. There's no really good place on the talking points to bring this up, but I did want to bring up. Um, so where I where I got this information from, uh, he was David Hemmingson was on Final Drafts podcast, which is called Right On, mm -hmm. and uh, he it's a great episode for anyone who wants to listen and get some very personal insight about the writing of this um he said he has a series of character writing prompts um and i think they're when you hear these they're gonna really inform like the characters that we're gonna talk about and how he came to those and uh, this is how he builds his characters he has uh four questions he asks himself number one how do they justify what they do and how they behave. Number two, what do they fear? Number mm -hmm. three, what are they proud of? What makes them feel like they have value, like they're worthwhile people? And number four, what are they ashamed of and hiding that makes them feel like they don't have value? And he said he can use these four prompts to build any character from. And I feel like uh, every we are experiencing the answers to those questions in every way, shape, and form throughout this story. So I just wanted to share that for listeners. Yeah, I almost feel like I could answer that. Yes, cle very clearly. Every character, very yes, clearly yes, about yes. All, all three of these leads. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, do you want... Okay, let's talk about the opening and closing image and arc. Who's is this? this is yeah, Jamie. this is me. This so is I, I found this, the opening and closing uh, to be instructive in this one. Uh, so I thought, I thought it'd be a good place to bring up an old yeah. topic that we've done a million yeah, yeah, yeah. times before. So this, what I'm going to tag is the opening image of this one. It kind of starts out with a choir and they're singing. And then we, 
it's almost very solemn. And I, I almost say it's like a snow globe in some ways of this small town. It's kind of blue collar town with this fancy pants school like up in the corner. And it's very solemn and nostalgic. And there's a little town of Bethlehem. And it's almost reverent to it. It's almost like church, right? It's like a mm -hmm. church hymn. Um, and it's kind of the opening image. So opening image and final image, uh, when you're writing, they're, they're good things to brainstorm first because you can say, how does my world start? And then how does it finish? And I'm going to kind of bridge the gap. My story is going to bridge the gap. I always say building bridges. So you're, you, you put your posts up and then you earn it. You know, you earn that journey from one end to the other. So the final image in this is Paul Giamatti's character driving out after he's kind of thrown himself on the grenade, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And he's changed. He's a changed person. But in the beginning, he's kind of the reverent person. He's kind of that nostalgicness is almost like what he believes or what he honors or what he lives by. It's that nostalgia. But in the end, he pulls over on the side of the road and he spits and then he drives on. So it kind of has this bookend of this reverence, which is his psychology in the beginning, to the point where he's like spits on the ground, hollowed ground, and drives off to live you know, a full life as opposed to this kind of contained institutionalized life that he began with. So anyway, if you come up with your opening and closing, then the go then all you have to do, as if it's easy, is earn it. <laughs> How do you earn that? <laughs> but at least you know the journey if you have the beginning and the end. And it's and it, you know what's extra interesting is because he threw himself on the grenade because he still believes in the motto of the school. You know what I mean? Integrity. Like he has integrity. About, well, I forget the actual wording of the motto, but it was like about how, how the schools changes boys into. Do you guys remember it? I don't remember. Oh, it, man. Like yeah. good human beings, basically. But he's he threw himself on the grenade. Right. Well, he knows that that would still happen and the school still has that much integrity even without him. Yeah, it's it's weird, though. I think he I, I think he still believes in the motto, but not the school. Yeah, 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 true. Like, that's almost how I'd pin it. Because the school is the same school that would have not stood up for the kid and not stood up for him yeah, and exactly. you know, all that stuff. But he still stands by the, the, the motto, the ultimate. I got the motto. Schools. Ready? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 um, yeah. One tr he says this in, in what I think, it's not on the talking points, is our version of the go to the classroom scene, which yeah, is right. the headmaster's office, not the classroom. Um and uh, he says, as Dr. Green used to say, and he gestures at the portrait in the script, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> our one true purpose is to produce young men of good character. Right. And we cannot sacrifice our integrity on the altar of their entitlement. Yes. Which, by the way, he's interrupted by the headmaster. He says, I don't care what that guy has to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's the motto. Yeah. Nice. Handy to have the script. And that, that cut would are you done with that, Jamie? Did you want to talk about the arc more or no? That's it. That's it. That's it. It's, okay. it's just that simple uh concept of opening image, closing image. And I thought this one had a decent bookend to talk about. Yeah. It does start very delicately showing us the life on campus and everything. Um the institutionalized genre. Yes, yes. So this is the the infamous genre conversation which i need to <laughs> try to find a way to press a button so uh 
I'll do Pull my spring. quick. Here, goes exactly. Jamie. <laughs> Here you go. The thing that I've probably repeated more than anything else on this podcast, I don't think there is any one thing, but so the genres are um, something from Save the Cat. So they're not like what I always say, blockbuster genres, not horror, comedy, drama. These are more like patterns of storytelling that re keep repeating themselves that you can kind of learn something from. Blake Snyder came up with 10 of them. Um, some of the ones we've talked about on the show many times, Monster in the House, which is horror movies. There's a monster, there's a house, there's a sin that brings about the monster. Um, Golden Fleece, there's a, a prize, a trophy, there's a road to get to it. There's a hero on the road. Dude with a problem, um, there's an innocent hero, there's a sudden problem, a life or death battle um, ensues. So in this one, there's another one that I, I kind of think, there's really two that come to mind. I mean, there's my knee-jerk one that comes to mind, and then there's the other one, and then there could even be a third genre that comes to mind here. So I wanted to talk about all three. So the knee-jerk one that I think is part of this, I, and I have a theory on this that I've talked about before. I do think this one kind of is a buddy love one, right? Mm -hmm. um, an incomplete hero, uh, a counterpart who makes that completion come about or has the qualities the hero needs, and a complication that, so they're either stuck together or they're driven apart or something like that. That's usually the story of a buddy love. And then they both learn from each other. Definitely has those qualities in that. And I'm gonna talk about that a little bit later on. Um, I, I have this theory that some of these genres always need to be combined with another genre. Like it's, it's rare that a buddy love story is just about the love or the buddiness. Usually there's something else going on and that's the B story or something like that. Like, like I'll give you an example, like Lethal Weapon. Those two are buddies, but really it's about the crime, right? But it's still, right. it's a, still a buddy love story, but it's also probably a, I don't know what Lethal Weapon is. A why done yeah. it probably. Probably a why yeah. done it or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, but still is a buddy love. Okay. So there's one other one that I wanted to bring up. In this in this case because we don't see this one that often and that's why I, this one popped up like oh maybe we can finally talk about this um institutionalized so institutionalized is institutionalized stories are usually about groups so a lot of times it's like group think almost so like like it's like the military or prison prison or something or or some kind of it's almost like the man is the problem or the institution is the problem or or the institution, maybe it's not the problem, but it's kind of the overall thing that's forcing people uh, to, to think in a certain way. You have a dystopian government, maybe even. Some, absolutely. Really yeah. Absolutely. Um, so it's usually a family, an organization, or a business that's unique. Um, the story is a choice. It's like there's this ongoing conflict that pits the person against the system. And there's usually like, yeah, I, Blake had a couple ideas, like I, he called one like a Brando, which was like a rogue. There was one, which maybe um, Angus is sort of, yeah. you know, he had another character called a Naif. And I think that would be kind of like somebody who, who really didn't get what was going on. They were kind of new and they're fish out of water kind of thing. And then he had, and then he has a character called a company man. And I think, I think Giamani's character would be definitely as yeah. a company man. Um, and the last but not least thing is, at the end, uh, there has to be a sacrifice has to be made. 
And it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like you join the system, you burn it down, or you commit suicide. So you fall in the grenade. And like I said, we already have the fall in the grenade moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So I think this one is very much like one to look at for institutionalized. Um, it's, it's one that really is about, you know, the way of thinking of the institution pervades Giamani's company man character. He goes head to head against a Brando as, uh, you know, this one doesn't have the knife. Usually there's a knife or a Brando. It's usually a fish out of water or a rebel. It's one or the other. Um, Cuckoo's Nest is another popular one that, yep. you know, they, that, that this one gets labeled as. But I do think this one has elements of institutionalized. So I think it's worth looking at for that reason. And I like the way that you uh, put it that, you know, these things are, you have an idea like this, you're trying to fill the blank page. You study, studying the genre patterns that your story, your concept fits can help you get, you know, the answers to what's going to be in your movie and also how to subvert it. Right. So, right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Cause there's even another one that I could see people falling on, which is right of rates of passage. Um, and the splash of that. Yeah. Yeah, for, totally. For, yeah, yeah. for him, at least for the, for the boy, at least as a for, yeah, yes. man, you know, and usually the rites of passage is there's a life problem. And usually it's like a life problem you can label like divorce, growing up, you know, something like that. I, I, there's probably something between him and his parents and, you know, all that kind of stuff that could be labeled as that. And usually there's a wrong way to attack the mysterious problem. Like that's the key. And the solution involves acceptance of some hard truth. Like that's, that's the three things. Right Which Angus there. absolutely does with his father and yeah, yeah, yeah. parents and his so place in the world. It's, yeah. It's kind of weird. Cause I can see like the buddy story is key. The institutionalized story is specifically like a Giamatti kind of story. Like if you look at it from that perspective, and then there's a rites of passage story informing that other story. So I, there's, there's, you know, different elements of all three in this one, but um, overall, I think the institutionalized is the one that really grabs me as like, Oh, this can, this can help a, you understand. It's it. a boarding school movie. It's a boarding. It's hard, yeah. it's hard not to see that. And or, all three characters are, you know, stuck. Yeah. Stuck. As mm -hmm. as the writer put it when he was describing this, the, the those characters, their lives are holding over in the in this institution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not just Christmas break; their their entire lives are stuck. Some by choice, <laughs> yeah. Some not, mm -hmm. some not by mm -hmm. choice, right? Um, are you want to talk about comic obsessions? Something yes. we've talked about a lot on this show. <laughs> we have every comedy episode almost. I think. Yeah, we didn't get to talk about it on um ten, 10 things. things that ten things, but um, but like bridesmaids and Wayne's World and stuff. We've we've addressed these. Yes. Yeah. Um, and not just in comedies too. We found it in Midsommar. Oh yeah. There it's uh, oftentimes the comic relief in a drama or horror story also has a comic obsession. So they're always well, obsessed with sex or food, <laughs> so, right? <laughs> sex and food. That's like usually. <laughs> so that's funny that you say that because one of the references is going to be a food thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so what is a comic obsession? Um, this came from, uh, I went to a years, decades ago, I went to a Robert McKee comedy centric seminar. And one of the techniques I pulled from, uh, was this notion of a comic obsession, which is when a character has a fixation or a behavior they feel is normal, 
but the other characters in the audience feel as extreme. So to them, this is just like normal, right? Um, and to everybody else, we're like, whoa, this person. And, and I, I, I think that in a horror movie also, you could twist this and call it a creepy obsession, right? You could do the same thing, but tweak it a little and make it a creepy obsession. But in this, uh, a couple also of- Also in a love story. In a love story, yeah, you could. Yeah. That's true. Um, it, a couple of easy to learn from examples, Meg Ryan, Sally, and When Harry Met Sally is her complicated restaurant orders. There's that food thing. Um, uh, Randy and Scream, his encyclopedic horror movie knowledge, also premise-specific comedic obsession. Um, and, uh, I think the holdovers has a great one and a really easy to learn from one, which is Paul's obsession with historical references. This is the <laughs> engine for what makes him a funny character. Like every time he pulls that out, it's always funny. Cause everybody in the, in the story is like, who gives a shit? Dude? They don't care at all. They don't even, <laughs> they don't even know the reference. He's, right. He's, never. he's talking to no one but himself. And that's why it's funny. Uh, yeah. And what he's talking to himself. <laughs> My favorite one is the my favorite example of how this shows how can how this can be used for comedy is uh, at the bowling alley bar when he's talking to the downtrodden Santa Claus and he tells him that his uniform is historically <laughs> inaccurate, inaccurate. <laughs> and gives this long rambling reference mm -hmm. to where the you know the legend of Santa Claus came from and everything and the Santa Claus just looks at him and blinks like what the fuck is your problem man <laughs> <laughs> so anyway this is th that uh Paul's obsession with giving historical references is a great example of this comic obsession and how to make something that makes your character funny in any situation basically yeah it's a great it's a great example like, <laughs> yeah like i feel like we could reference in other episodes where we talk about comic conceptions you could reference paul yeah paul you know what i mean like you he's a good reference paul, yeah yeah he's a good reference um <laughs> meta uh, meta right right do you want to talk about the b story beats yeah Who's yeah this? This? this is mine this is okay mine. and and this goes back to the buddy love thing so i you know I, i'm doing this recent webinar and i've been coming up with some new stuff for it so this was something new i kind of came up for for the for the b story i i found so in save the cat one of the 15 beats is is the b story and it comes right after the break into two right before the fun and games and it just kind of sits there. It's called this B story beat. And a lot of people get very confused as to what, what it is or how to use it or, or something like that. And I think there's, there's a few things, um, there's a few things that become difficult with the B story beat. Um, one is the B story is actually a story. So it's more than one beat, even though it's just, it sits there in, in the, in the middle, you know, as, as this beat you have to fill in and the way it's kind of evolved over time is that people now say the B story beat is the first beat of the B story. Like that's, that's kind of it. It's, and it usually means a character becomes more important or a character becomes, um, something about the character we realize, uh, sometimes it's the first time they meet. Um, but it's some kind of thing that happens there that some character comes into the person's life. So, um, Maybe it's when Luke Skywalker talks to Obi-Wan Kenobi or something like that. You know what I mean? That's like, and that's, that might be that. Or maybe it's when, um, 
Harry Dan- met Sally. Daniel LaRusso. <laughs> no, that happens a little earlier because know, of that movie. <laughs> Maybe it happens with Daniel LaRusso um, when Mr. Miyagi saves him for the first time. So mm-hmm. even yeah. though that character is in the movie, it kind of says, oh, this guy knows karate, you know, and he can he might be able to train me. So it kind of is takes the story to the next level. It kicks those two off into what I think is like a situation ship. You know what I mean? They're in some kind of thing together. They're stuck together. Situationship. Um, situationship. I like that. Yeah. It's a very zenial term. Very zenial Jamie. term. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they're they're in the situationship. I think so. These are I came up with some some beats to help people flesh out their B story. And I'd I'd like to just kind of read them off and maybe we can figure out what if these beats even apply to the holdovers. Keep in mind that I came up with these beats in order to help you brainstorm a story, not to analyze somebody else's story, because they might not do these beats. They might totally ignore it. But I think most of these, you can kind of see what I'm talking about by looking at the holdovers. So the number one beat I have is the meet cute. Um, But the way I determine meet cute, it's very much kind of like what I just said about the first B story beat. Like, it's the thing that starts the situation ship. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. It's so uh, Giamatti and the kid might have a relationship already, but what's the thing that's locking them together? That's either going to force them to be together, or or it's going to um, push them apart. Uh, is the thing. And in this case, it's pushing them together. And, Christmas, yeah, break, right? Yeah, and I would even analyze it as when everybody else goes away except him. Um, Cause then now they're one-on-one. Now they're literally there together. One-on-one. Could you, could you frame it like Paul Giamatti has no one. And now the kid also surprisingly has no one. Has also. no one as well. And yeah, they both have no one. Yes. The, these two yeah. are buddies now. It's and not Jamie, even. There's, yeah. there's also one for Mary when he goes to uh, the kitchen and they have their first scene together that's just the two of them and that's he the finds out she, yeah, yeah she's going to be no even before that oh, he before finds that. out she's going to be um there with them right. for the christmas break and you know she she basically offers him a drink he's looking at her you know bottle and she pulls out a cup and then she says you know this is a necessity right, right. <laughs> and they right. have yeah, the, yeah, yeah. they share a drink right there when we first have, meet them yeah yeah there there's some great by the way, we didn't go over these, but rooting, rooting resume kind of material and stuff in that near, like when the per- one person's, you know, talks about her cooking and Giamatti gets so mad and like, you don't understand what that woman has to do. You know, when he gets so angry about that and stuff, there's some great stuff in there. Yeah, there is. Um, Jamie, move your mic forward. Where's, where's my mic? <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, thanks. Okay. It's weird. Cue the phone call. Yeah, yeah. Um, there we go. The doorbell. Okay. There we go. Um, so uh, let's see. Where where else are we? So um, so anyway, that's the meet cute. Um, then there's the love and games, which I think is kind of like the fun and games. So now we're in this situation ship. They're kind of there's this complication that's holding them together, and now we're going to do things that kind of milk the tension of that. Um, and these are all the little things that that happen of him running around the school and whatever, whatever else that has them kind of come head to head that we're just milking the complication of stuff. And like Bob said, you know, the the dating game, them watching uh, Mary and 
I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. Mary and Paul have their own version of this also happening. And they're watching the dating game together. They're doing the I share, you share, you talk about Jamie, where, mm-hmm. you know, one dating game scene she's sharing about her her backstory and then the next dating game scene she's asking him for the answers to the same question you ever been married you ever and we get these answers that we're curious about and it's very much like a love story yeah 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 and i I should say that while this the first two beats i think are most of these b stories some of these beats i have skipped them uh the b stories skip them and these b story beats are sprinkled in to the multi-scene beats, like the fun and games, the bad guys close in and sometimes intersect with the single scene beats. So all that's a little bit much, but I just know that this is almost like the shadow story going on yeah. across the main story. Right. Um, so so the next beat I have, we talked about it last time, the, the sex at 60 beat around the midpoint, um, but also the intimate moment slash sex at 60. So in a, in a movie that has true romance maybe there would be a kiss maybe there would be a love scene right in the middle that kind of took things to the next level in a movie like this that's that's not a romantic relationship uh it's it's usually more like they touch each other in an intellectual way or by saying something or confessing something deep or they seeing each other a different way and i i definitely think this movie has has those this movie has, it a, has a few of them it yeah. feels like it, it's a progression of them it has that, a few that yeah. exact yeah. midpoint though is definitely their the their version of this when uh he break you know when he's chasing him around the that's school what i was that's what i like him. yeah yeah right grenade he jumps on the grenade bro- for, yep. for he ju- him he jumps so. on the grenade angus yeah. jumps on the grenade for for paul yeah yeah he does not yeah. want to get him in trouble and i i think that is that kind of moment where it's, it's like bonding. Oh, yeah. 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 Maybe this guy is going to be my friend kind of thing, or maybe this, this is deeper than just student kind of there's a, teacher a splash kind of, of that at the winning ticket bar mm-hmm. too. There's like more how they that, get out yeah. of that situation. And it seems like they kind of, they become partners instead of tension. They're, you yeah. know, they're starting to work together. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so anyway, that, that usually then stirs a deeper relationship. So we're going from this, situationship to an actual relationship in some ways um then the internal bad guys heartfelt confessions this beat is usually the those feelings are stirred from that intimate moment or whatever and now real confessions are shared uh sometimes and these confessions usually address the need or relate to like the shard of glass like the shard of glass being the origin story of why they're flawed like what What's that kind of like what you said, the deep down shame or whatever that they have that maybe they don't tell anybody about. These are kind of those feelings kind of starting to get stirred up. They're starting to show true sides of themselves during this section. Um, And then this is a beat I that I almost always see. It's called I call it the we almost had it all beat where the relationship gets really, really close. And you can feel these two people are getting close. And the interesting thing is. After the intimate moment, what I find in buddy stories, it pretty much is on a positive trajectory. Um, we're usually like, we go from like, an, you know, they don't understand each other too much to, oh, now we're getting closer and closer and closer. Um, and it kind of raises the stakes in some ways. And it reaches a crescendo when they get the almost had it all. Like, like they're just having fun and they're friends and they're kind of... I think the movie theater beat is kind of like that when, yep. you're, when you're hanging out. 
I um, think in this movie it would be like when they're celebrating New Year's Eve or something like that. Like I, that feels like that, that, harmony. That could be one. I actually think like that point when they when they're watching that movie together and stuff. To me, that was what I labeled. Gotcha. Only, but yeah. only because it usually happens right before a beat. I call that this movie doesn't really have, and I'm I'm actually surprised it doesn't. It teases it though. It teases it. It, it. teases it. Um, yeah. But the big breakup, and I I think that scene where he sneaks away is the big breakup scene. It's like, it feels like it, it. feels like it. So you it, get that much. The way the movie works, they don't, they don't, they don't like wallow in it. You know what I mean? It's just like, they have the kind of, and then the, he instantly says about his father and then it kind of transitions, but the big breakup scene, it's kind of there. I mean, it, it feels like it, it feels like what a, a movie would normally have is a big breakup. The big breakup usually comes either at the all is lost or right after the all is lost. Like sometimes what happens in a movie is something horrible happens and then they blame each other and they break up. You know, that happens a lot in movies with B stories. And then last but not least is, and this is, this comes from Blake's materials in some ways, but the race to the airport moment. And then the liar, liar, right? Liar, liar. Exactly. Name <laughs> the romantic comedy. Um, right, right. And, and to me, the hero has to make a grand gesture to show how different they are as a person and how worthy the buddy is. So in it's this, right there. yeah, in this case, I think throwing themselves on the grenade and stuff like that is the grand gesture. Um, so these are just some beats to help people flesh out. Like I've, I've had so many people ask me about the B story that I finally broke down and I said. How can I be instructive? So I came up with these, I don't know how many, seven or eight beats um, that I think can help you kind of flesh it out. And then you can kind of sprinkle these where they're appropriate in your story. And I bet this this crosses genres too. Like I bet we could break this down for Quint and Brody. Oh, absolutely. And Hooper. Absolutely. And this, you'd yeah. find like the big breakup and, you know. I, no, so <laughs> the so, sacrifice, the grand gesture, right? Ah, he's yeah. getting eaten by the shark. <laughs> so I, 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 I intended this Quint's not grand gesture. I, What's I, the race to the airport. Okay. Yeah, I intended this not to be for um, buddy love stories necessarily, even though it maps. I intended this to be for any stories, B story. I think that's what it's for. So, that's why I brought it yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It should map across genres. And again, maybe some of them, maybe not all of them show up in like a movie where Quint gets killed at the all is lost moment, you know? So, <laughs> so you don't get to the big breakup or the race to the airport because you kind of ended it though. Though quite honestly, um, it's probably not Quint. It's probably um, Brody and uh, what's Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah. Hooper. They're, they're probably, uh, the, they're Quit probably the B story. Yourself, yeah. And, and maybe they, if, I don't know, we'd have to go back and do Jaws. Maybe they no, do have more just, of the beat. We did, we yeah. did Jaws, but I would say both of them aren't as endeared to Quint in that way, like you're talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're endeared to each other. But, I wanted yeah. to bring it up yes, because yes. I no, no, it's think a good that example. this is a great tool for multiple genres, Jamie. I yeah. love it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it, it, it really was intended for that because I get so many people that just don't know what to do with the B story. And then they just kind of do one beat and they kind of get confused. And I was like, <laughs> look and, and i almost feel like these are are beats that kind of again they're like the shadow story so you could put them in different places 
Um, you don't have to think of them as an exact like page 27 or something. Oh, God. Like, yeah. You know, like you know what movie kept coming up while you were describing these, Jamie, is mm -hmm. Harry and the Hendersons. I kept, for some reason, every one of these beats, I kept reading Harry and the Hendersons. Yes, we should do Harry and the Hendersons. Was it Harry and John Lithgow that you were yeah, kind of thinking yeah. of? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 They're, it's kind of a, it's a buddy story between the two of them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I don't know why that's what came up, but that's what came up. I think it was the 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 big breakup. You okay, know? yeah. <laughs> Come oh, on, man, I mean like, the big breakup, well, right? Yeah. Well, almost every movie does have the big does have breakup. that, right? Yeah, you know, the big yeah. breakup is just something where people start pointing fingers, and you know, it, and it always happens right around the dark night of the soul. Sometimes it is the all is lost beat, but not always. Yeah, yep. Good. Uh, touch tones and twitches. Uh, this is mine, and this is something that we haven't only talked about a couple times in 112 episodes. So, um, and uh, this comes from uh, a guy named William Martell. Um, if you're out there and you're listening and you're learning the craft and you haven't read William Martell's blue books, check them out. They're really awesome. Jamie and I reference them a lot on this show, um, and uh, they're filled with little tricks just like we talk about a lot and uh the touchstone and twitch is one of my favorites um and it is basically we are introduced to objects that uh allow us to like visually they are like a visual representation of a character's like emotional conflict and every time we see them and and the the touchstone side of it is those are the positive feelings it's a positive me memories Pot, they, the person is feeling something positive in relation to that object and the twitch is the negative and so every time this thing shows up the character twitches you know and and the stories use these objects to give us like an emotional barometer every time they show up to show how the character is growing or changing or not growing and not changing when they should you know and uh holdovers has some so so some some great examples one we did talk about my favorite one is the mitchells versus machines uh the wooden moose dad's favorite thing in that movie the touchstone has its own like evolving storyline where we learn right. more about it and behind it and it's it, it does multiple it works on multiple levels um a very easy to learn from one is top gun goose's dog tags uh maverick wears them around his neck after we see that you know that situation that creates his wound is an emotional complex and every time he's stressed out and feeling that guilt and shame he's clutching the dog tags you know and then in the in the before the climax uh he throws the dog tags into the ocean and it signifies to the to the audience that he has healed or at least made his peace with this shame and this guilt and that he's ready to like you know achieve the goal and um sometimes it's a song in in the black widow it's a it's a tape and the actual song american pie for the family and their whole backstory but uh, anyway the holdovers has a bunch of easy to learn from examples of this and how to do it well and also shows that you don't really need to use it much and it's still impactful so the first one is angus and his old family christmas card and we meet yeah. him it's in the first scene when we meet him he's rooting around for it he, he wants to, you can tell like there's something important that he wants to look at and he pulls it out and there's emotion on his face and we want to learn more interesting side note in the script it is a beach photo 
It's not Christmas specific. And <laughs> in the movie, they changed it to a Christmas card. Premise, specific, right? yes. Yeah, so yeah. I thought that was a very they they like realized before they got to shoot, like, why don't we make it more Christmassy? Um, and so and Angus also has another one, which is the snow globe. When he's at the Christmas party, you can tell he's feeling emotions about the Christmases he once had. Yeah, it's yeah. very relatable. And then it turns out that he steals that Christmas glo- snow globe and gives it to his dad in the institution. And then that snow globe ends up being sort of the catalyst for Paul throwing him, sacrificing himself, right? So the snow globe is like a, an example of a twitch um, or his touchstone. Um, to, Mary has two which is Curtis's uniform that's hanging, you know, in, in right in the center of her closet, you know, and uh, the brown box filled with Kurt. So this is a touchstone, the brown box filled with Curtis's baby mementos that she then gives away, right? She, she lets go of it and she gives it to her sister who's pregnant. So that's another example of a touchstone. And that only shows up three times, so you don't need much, but every time it's it's there, we know what Mary's feeling. She doesn't have to say anything, and the audience gets it. Um, and then the third is my favorite one is the crystal bottle of cognac in the headmaster's office, Paul. <laughs> right. Which is so that first scene, the go to the classroom scene, where he's where he's art, you know, where he's being told he has to stay there, and we learn all this tension about his character and the headmaster. Um, Paul's staring at that cognac uh, because like he can't afford it and it's like you know it's the fanciest it's the fancy and uh, the headmaster says oh yeah Remy Mar- Martin uh, Louis VIII Christmas gift from the board of trustees and Paul says oh how generous of them <laughs> <laughs> and anyway uh, in the middle of all of the holdover section where they're you know Christmas break there's a scene that they added that isn't in the script where Paul's just they give us a middle beat where Paul's just like staring at that cognac, like motherfucker, I could totally just steal this thing, right? right, right. And then in the end, Jamie, how Jamie described that that He's bookend, that closing image. Not only does he steal it and covet it, you know, he wastes it, it. Like, he wastes it, right? He it represents <laughs> yeah. his failure and his entrapment and his you know his imprisonment in this institution and his shame and everything. It's like so perfect. He steals that cognac and he spits it out. He's got it. He's just as good as them. You know, like, yeah, so that that's it, 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 it. It's it's a great example of a twitch. And uh, I I thought that we can do an episode about this also, without talking also, about those things. It's it's also really interesting too. the movie does not wrestle with his drinking. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't any rest- sort of uh, I, which I'm fine with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't like really wrestle too. with the drinking problem. It's not a movie about substance abuse. No, it is not. But so. it's just. It's it's just amazing to me. It didn't. I think it'd be a more hacky thing to do. Mm-hmm. Wrestle yeah, like drinking. yeah, like they they probably had that conversation, right? And I like, think her saying it's a necessity goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, the at, the, at the front of it. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> so yeah, um, those are those are. I think I listed five examples of touchstones as this movie and twitches. Yeah, yeah. No, I had my first Miller High Life a couple of weeks ago, and it was the <laughs> Champagne of Beers. I actually really liked it. Like, like my my brother in law bought Miller High Life, and she because I like Miller. I drink Miller Lights, and he was like, he's like, do you like Miller High Life? And I'm like, I never had one. No, I actually liked it. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, that that was your meat cute with Miller High Life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, do you guys want to talk exposition techniques? I think this is you too, Jimmy, right? This is going to be mainly you and me now. That's me and um, you, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, we're going to do something a little different, and Bob and I are going to read some of these exposition scenes. So uh, I think this movie has, more than anything, the craft that I took away from this movie is how they um, handle exposition and the slow mm-hmm. drip of information and uh, I got a great quote from listening to um, David Hemmingson talk about writing this script that was, is a perfect intro to this. He said, I wanted to un- unpack the truth of these characters slowly. You can't just revel- reveal <clears throat> major information to people randomly. I always try to figure out where is this information going to go? What are the breadcrumbs that lead you there? And when when you actually decide to reveal it, what is the most powerful and truest way of saying and showing it to the audience? How is it appropriate to the character in these moments? Mm-hmm. That's how you make the emotions land as real as possible. So I thought that was great insight directly from the writer. Um, so I just kind of wanted to talk through uh, like five different exposition techniques. And some of these are directly from things I've learned from Jamie. And then some of these are things I've never talked about before. So um, the first one is at the Christmas mass. um, And this is what David S. Freeman, this, this seminar I've talked about a bunch of times called beyond structure. Um, One of his techniques is called a happy occasion slam. And this is not just for exposition. This is for many things. When, when a character is going through something, some turmoil. Uh, one of the best ways to make us feel emotions about that is to have so, some a happy occasion that reminds the character of that problem, right? In this case, um, there's a giant portrait, and we'll just get into it. Uh, Can uh, we read there, that? I'll read this. Uh, the oh, church, okay. the okay. church scene opens in on the script page. The church scene opens with this mysterious image, which is a portrait of Curtis Ezra Lamb in uniform with a plaque bearing the dates 1951 to 1970. So that creates a question for us, like, who is this mystery? There's tension. Um, but it's also a happy occasion, right? Like, like everybody right, right. in church is happy. It's Christmas. And they're um, going to get to go home. Everybody's it's, happy, right? Yeah, there's a buzz in the air. Yeah. And and then we learn about the loss of Mary's son revealed amidst a festive Christmas mass. So that happy occasion slam. And Father Joe, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but Father Joe talk, talks about her son says, um, Just this year, Curtis gave his life valiantly in the service of his country. And let us again extend our deepest condolences to one of the most cherished members of the Barton family, his mother, Mary. And in the script, it describes her. Mary can barely barely hide a mix of powerful emotions, grief, anger, resentment behind a stoic face. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think it's this that's a great instructive way it's such a simple it's a really hard thing to like not be on the nose about you know and make it feel digestible and th- that doing it in the happy occasion slam way i think works really well yeah we know exactly how she feels about her son how we know she, how she feels about this institution and how she feels about this occasion right, right now like all just, three yeah. all three just from her look they're getting to go home i'm stuck here and my son is dead yep um so uh and, the, and nothing you say is going to make me feel better no mm. yeah words mm. are not going to heal that mm. yeah. this one this one i want to read bob you can be judy and i'll be angus um so the, sec- the second <laughs> the second technique is uh called 
exposition is ammunition. That's when exposition comes in the form of an argument and someone using their side of the argument to kind of deliver a bullet, right? Uh, but right. through that, um, we we learn exposition. And uh, Alex Epstein's crafty screenwriting, I don't know if either of you, Jamie, have you read that book? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think it's so. a great book. And he also has a TV writing book, by the way, that's also great. Um, he's a development executive. And, I know of um, a better one. I, yeah. do, I do too. But he, <laughs> he's got this great simple quote, which is the easiest way to absorb information is when it comes in the form of an argument. And we've talked about that. That is what exposition as ammunition means. Right. Um, so there's a great example of that when Angus is arguing with his mom, like, please don't leave me here on Christmas. Uh, and I felt like we should just read the dialogue and show sure. how it does that. So I'm the mom and on I'm the, other, on the other end of the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Stanley has been working so hard and we never had time for a honeymoon. You guys have been married since July. You've had all these months. Something always came up. I know it's a lot to ask, but you know how lonely I've been. I've been lonely too. And what about Boston? You promised on the way we'd spend time in Boston. Angus, listen to me. This is our new family, okay? I know you miss your father. I do too. But now there's someone new in my life. It's just this once, darling. We'll be together at spring break and we'll have the whole summer. Fuck the summer and fuck Stanley. So it's this there you go. quick yeah. argument. You don't even see her. You just hear her. And we learn everything we need to know about Angus. And we get so many answers to his anger and his behavior. And, he, and we're like, why is this kid like this? And we learn even more about that insight into that later. But it's it's 15 pages in and I feel like and what is it? Maybe a half a page. And and that's, that's like everything you need. So it's a great example of how to use exposition as ammunition to give us insight into the character. OK, so the third one. Uh, uh, we talk about this a lot, actually, in like horror movies, like a great example is the Ghostbusters burying, burying exposition with a joke. Uh, you know, Ghostbusters talk about like uh, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. They talk about the Gozer stuff and then they always bury it right, with right. a joke. Um, any sort of thing like that, you can then bury it with a joke. And uh, I think this scene in the winning ticket restaurant uh, where uh, Paul's talking to Lydia about the headmaster is a great example of that. So, uh, Bob, you can be Paul. I'll be Miss Crane. Okay. 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 So how'd you get stuck holding over? I thought this was Mr. Endicott's year. I'm being punished. Dr. Woodrup is, how can I put this? A pompous ass with a dictator complex. Oops. What I meant to say was that he's a lovely, compassionate educator with a really groovy beard. I've had a lot of former students rise to positions of authority but he's the only one I've ever had to report to. He was your student? My first year teaching, and he was an asshole even then. <laughs> so there, we get two jokes. Right, right, we right. We get yeah. two jokes. So it's a, we, that's like halfway into the movie, um, and they're just slowly un, you know, revealing more and more information, and it's really important to the ending that we learn that he, this guy, this headmaster, his boss, he's, he was he was his teacher like it's just right, a great, right a great easy way to do exposition uh bury it with a joke so uh the fourth technique that it uses 
uh, we have talked about many times, and uh, it is called Pope in the Pool. Jamie, do you want to explain what Pope in the Pool is? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, Pope in the Pool, it's a Blake Snyder uh, thing from the original Save the surprise, Cat. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think it's in the same chapter where he explains what Save the Cat means. And uh, Pope in the Pool, apparently there was this old movie where there was this long exposition thing happening. And in in the background, the Pope was there and he was getting undressed and getting in the pool. And it was just so weird and distracting. You almost didn't realize <laughs> what was going on with the exposition because <laughs> you were so focused on the Pope getting in the pool. So it's like a Zucker Brothers joke, it, right? It devil, like, that's what I think yeah, of. I always yeah. think of like it's like airplane, airplane or something, something going yeah. on the back of the yeah. frame. But but the idea is to give something, uh, you know, almost off topically interesting within the expositional scene. Yeah, and and you can do this in a variety of ways, and it's a really easy way. You, the uh, The character is focused on one thing that has nothing to do with the conversation itself, so we are simultaneously trying to keep up with what they're focused on and keep up with the the massive info dump that is being given to us and it makes it all easy to absorb right and like it's really hard to do that to just dump a bunch of information and make it entertaining so i thought that the liquor store after he runs into after paul runs into his old harvard his former hardened harvard uh, classmate and they lie and they do all that we're really we've been itching to learn and they've had, they've created all that intrigue. So we've been itching to learn like what the fuck happened? Like, what is this guy's deal? Um, and then he runs into uh, the liquor store. Cause he's just desperate for a drink, a good drink, Jim, his favorite. It's a necessity. Yeah. It's a necessity. Right. And so the whole scene, the Pope and the pool aspect is, is Paul in the liquor store, just trying to find his drink of choice. Right. And, and, uh, it does another thing, which is Jamie, you've you've labeled this this exposition technique technique need to know basis. And Angus has this desire, just like we do, to know what is the story behind this, right? And Angus's desire creates that tension and that drive to get these answers too. So it's kind of doing why, two why are you one. you? Why are you you? And also yeah. the open the pool aspect of I just want to find the goddamn bottle of Jim Beam. Um, <laughs> so I thought we'd just like read yeah, yeah. exactly how the script describes it. So, uh, I'll be Angus. You can be Paul. Okay. 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 Interior liquor store night. Paul enters and starts scanning the shelves. Angus follows. I thought Barton men don't lie. Don't get me wrong. That was fun, but you just lied through your teeth. What I say during a private conversation is none of your goddamn business. You're not to judge me. It wasn't a private conversation. The wife and I were there and I helped you. Why'd he ask if you landed on your feet? What is this, Nuremberg? You're the hard ass constantly telling everybody not to lie and going on and on about the honor code. There was an incident when I was at Harvard with my roommate. And? He accused me of copying from his senior thesis, plagiarizing. Well, did you? No. He stole from me. But that blue-blooded prick's family had allies on the faculty. I mean, their last name is on the library. So he accused me in order to sanitize his treachery, and they threw me out. So you got kicked out of Harvard for cheating? No, I got kicked out of Harvard for hitting him. You hit him? Like punched him out? No, I hit him with my car. You got kicked out of Harvard for hitting a guy with a car? Paul finally sees his bottle of Jim Beam behind the register and approaches the stone-faced cashier. By accident. 
but he broke three ribs, which was technically his fault because he shouldn't have been in that road. Pine of Jim Bean. <laughs> $2, please. Paul pulls out his wallet and pays the cashier. Also, he shat himself, which was the greater indignity. <laughs> Here you go, killer. So, you I know, mean, yeah, it's that's... just such great back and forth. I almost broke this down for dialogue techniques, but I figured we just focus on the expositional side. So as you can see, like they even split up the dialogue a little bit by by giving us an update like he found the bottle of jim d beam and then a little bit more into the argument like he takes the bottle to the cashier you know like that's how you keep us keep the exposition easy and keep the exposition easy to to it doesn't feel like exposition ever you know this exposition goes so much into what we already had talked about too about institutions and also the images yeah like he had it's, already it's, been it's, it's tapping into all those things were right. already yeah well he'd already been forsaken by an institution wrongly sort of before that yeah before that <laughs> and so then he made his allegiance to another institution and in the end you get the the fact that you kind of don't think he'll ever do that again right you know and that in this scene i think is is key to knowing that yeah and it's also just, that was the last straw and just great segue into this comment that so so some insight from from the writer from david hemmingson um he was talking about this scene and he said that was paul's central secret his main source of shame that he's been doing this job all these years under false pretenses he never even graduated from college so when he yields that shameful secret this truth sets him free and it is like you said the last straw it's like the catalyst is it's like right. one big push toward the big moment of growth. So, um, and then there's only one more that I want to talk about. Um, and that it, an, another exposition technique, uh, which is, this is a very easy one too, which is characters hiding secrets. When we, when we see a character like hiding some secret shame, that's a great easy way to make it not feel like over the top on the nose exposition. Right? So in the hotel room, they're both taking Librium, uh, reveal is uh, this is how it's scripted. So Angus grabs something out of his suitcase, but drops it on the way to the bathroom. A bottle of pills. Paul picks it up. Those are my vitamins. Librium? Yeah, it's just something I supposed to take for low energy. You mean depression? Hey, is that rye toast? How'd you know I like rye toast? Angus grabs a slice and disappears into the bathroom. Paul reaches into his suitcase pulls out a bottle of Librium of his own and unscrews the cap. So it's just a simple little moment, but it's so well handled, right? There's conflict, right, there's right. tension, there's mystery, there's secrets from both, secret shame from both of them, and the audience gets to feel all of that, and none of it feels like it's being thrown in our face. So five different of, exposition techniques that this movie does really well. A little bit of almost like off-screen uh of them coming buddies without them knowing yeah it. there's another for, uh, bonding for, moment right bonding for the audience almost a yeah little bit. that's yeah we got a little superior position there yeah yeah um that's everything with x yeah that's with the exposition so we got one hey, more and it's rule of threes <laughs> rule thanks of for threes. reading that with me bob that was fun yeah that's um good. uh i don't i don't have the juice to do paul giamatti but you know <laughs> i never so, said um, i did <laughs> so there's there's two of these but i only tracked one i'll mention the second one so uh another technique that you can learn from holdovers to show once again how it's using all the tricks to tell this great story and why you're feeling what you're feeling um is the rule of three and that is um this comes from comedy from vaudeville if you do something three times on stage it's supposed to be funny um when you repeat something more than once it becomes a pattern 
and the audience sort of assigns meaning to that thing that you just saw a second time. So when the third thing, third time it's repeated, we have already assigned meaning to it. And that gives you an, an, an ability to like subvert it and reverse it and play with our emotions. Um, and it, it's all about creating tension about something that we're seeing over and over again. So this can come in the form of situations or dialogue or both. Um, I mean, the one that instantly comes to mind for some reason is Captain American vision. We don't trade lives, you know, and then, and then, you know, when Vision makes a sacrifice, he says, or, or you know, saves Captain America, he says to Captain America, we don't trade lives. Um, there's so many examples of this. So uh, The Holdovers does one that's really, really good that I really enjoy, which is a scenario repetition of lying, which is mm -hmm. all about the, the, the code, the Barton code, right? Barton right, right. men don't yeah. lie. Right. Um, and and uh, there's three examples of this which is um, it's Angus and Paul lying on the fly to protect each other. Um, and these re this, this use of repetition shows how a relationship is changing and growing. It's a really easy way to make us feel like, oh my God, things are getting better or oh my God, things are getting worse. So the first example is in the emergency room that we talked about. Angus lies about his injury because he doesn't want to get Paul in trouble and then Paul lies with him, right? He joins him in the lie at the end. Oh, it's okay. Um, <laughs> and then the second time is Paul lies to his former Harvard classmate at classmate at the skating rink about what he's doing with his life. Right, right. He's embarrassed. And then Angus, to save face for him, lies with him. What to tell him about your book about the cameras, <laughs> ancient cameras. <laughs> right. Um, and then the third one is the big falling on the grenade that Jamie has spoken of. Uh, Paul lies about why they went to Boston, said it was his idea to keep Angus from getting sent to military school, and he gets fired. I love that the other one was, the first lie was to save his job, mm -hmm. and the second one ends up getting him fired. I love that reversal, you know, that tells its own mini story. So it's just a great- It's a real, uh, the opposite of the truth will set you free. Exactly. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, that's funny. Um, but th there's another one with Entre New, but I didn't track it. But there, the use of Entre New, that 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 catchphrase of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of, uh, of Paul Angus, then uses that Entre New um, in reverse in in some meaningful moments to show how like he's now he understands and they're bonded and yeah. So that was all. It works. Oh man, it's so good. Yeah, the craft. I love it. Yeah, no, and the guy who wrote it, he's done, like you said, he's done so many interviews. Listen to him. That yeah, they're like, out there. They're out there, and he's he's good. Uh, he was on the movies that made me. Now, he doesn't talk much about the holdovers, but him talking about other movies, really good stuff. Oh. Uh, he worships Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jamie, if you didn't know that. <laughs> oh, like, cool. That's like one of his favorites of all time. Cool, because so. usually when I watch that or listen to that podcast, it's, it's always things I've never heard of, like, you know. No, no, he, he's he's like they talk about Raiders first thing. I think yeah, that was like, it's, yeah, it's usually like something that only jumped. and get out. He loves get out. Oh, was, cool. Yeah. Cool. One yeah. of the things that that really was really surprising, but just it's it's a very familiar story um, is that he has been he said he's been working for 27 years. And Jamie said he had 200 television writing credits. And this is his first 
feature film that he's actually seen go into production like actually made yeah so he sold a couple before this but this is the first one that actually got made so after 27 years of writing you know professionally that's all it takes yeah that's all so so anyway it's just i'm happy for him it's awesome yeah it's great and he's probably i mean i'm assuming he's going to become a feature writer after this yeah i have no idea i assume but so i don't know how things work but uh did you guys have anything else you wanted to add anything plugs anything more about the holdovers yeah i don't think i have any your uh, favorite paul giamatti movie <laughs> i i guess i'll plug you know this is this is not very this is not relevant whatsoever and definitely not of the the craft level of the holdovers but um a movie that i co-wrote and co-produced like 15 years ago is finally coming to blu-ray it's called president's day it was inspired by an alexander payne movie it is a slasher version of election so i guess it's a little relevant um and uh yeah it takes place at a high school election um it's a very cheap five thousand dollar budget slasher but hey uh enough people are interested that a company terrorvision was kind enough to put it out on blu-ray so 15 years later it's coming out so check that out at terrorvision.com there might be a dash in there terror dash vision i'm not sure but um probably just google terrorvision you'll find yeah. it yeah and and in a few weeks also um a movie that i co-wrote a feature film that i co-wrote and co-produced uh what happens next will scare you that bob also helped out on um should be out from the same company uh on blu-ray as well so those, cool. those things are cool yeah jamie anything uh not really watch go watch last night at terrace lanes it's still out there um and i don't have a patreon or anything but you know i'm I've, i'm always forgetting to pitch my my books on amazon so you know if you like this instead of a patreon why don't you go buy a 2.99 book of jamie nash like there's probably the one adult one i have is called nomad go look go find nomad right. it's kind of a sci-fi alien meets the thing sort of horror story go check it out for 2.99 it's a deal it's a deal hell yeah that's like cup of coffee actually exactly. it's less expensive than most cups of coffee and a patreon right? yeah. yeah it's like you yeah. can buy two coffees for that price like three <laughs> right yeah yeah for like a third of a cup of coffee enjoy nomad um i think that's everything guys yeah yeah uh, we'll, right. we'll see you next time thanks for listening everyone bye bye see ya Hey, this is Bob Rose, and thank you for listening to Writer's Blockbusters. If you'd like to financially support the show, please consider joining my Patreon. I've been producing the podcast for several years completely out of pocket, and I'd like to keep producing it ad-free and no longer at a loss. If you'd like to help, head on over to patreon.com slash Bob Rose sucks. That's right. Bob Rose sucks. And if you want the one and only Jimmy George to help polish up that writing project you're kind of struggling with, head on over to scriptbutcher.com. As a listener, you already know he's the best there is. Scriptbutcher.com. You can also support the show by simply sharing it or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate both. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.